All right, you ready for this? Ready. Tom Salami, welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Great to have you here. Welcome if this is your first time. Got a great program for you. We'll get right into it. A few things I wanted to highlight. We'll be talking with Dr. Jim Min. He's the founder and CEO of Clearly Health. This is a newish feature, or actually it's a brand new feature we're doing for the podcast. I want to uh, try to take some deeper dives into uh, into VC deals. So we'll talk with Dr. Min about uh, why he created the company and what he did to get ready to raise their recent $43 million round. And then in two weeks, we'll talk to a couple of the VCs that uh, that backed him and we'll learn how they vetted the company and why they decided to invest. So I hope you enjoy that. A little later on, I'll speak with Jeremy Moniak. Jeremy is the CEO of Minitronics, a CMO with a very cool new strategy. Uh, and uh, it's one that uh, I enjoy talking to him about. So I hope you'll enjoy both of those conversations. We'll have a, a little bit of news on our events uh, that'll come right at the tail end of the New Markers Newsmakers. And uh, related to my two-week comment just a few seconds ago, we'll have some, uh, some news about next week's podcast, next week's episode. So uh, please do stay tuned and listen all the way through. Now it's time to bring in my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, executive editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device. Chris Newmarker, how are you, sir? Doing well, Tom. How you doing, man? I, I missed you last week, Chris. How, how yes. are the sniffles? Have they all gone bye-bye? You feeling it, better? It's all, it's all, well, you know, we, we, I called you up <laughs> and you heard me on the, I was like, hey, Tom, let's do the podcast. <laughs> like, so it, it was actually a good time if I'd wanted to like renegotiate my bill with Comcast or, you know, any, anything like that. I would have been a good time. Right. Like, 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 hey, this cable bill's too high. You sounded, you were in rough shape for sure. It was, an, it, was an, it was a rough time. Like, yeah, you know, we were finally pushing COVID back. So now we get to enjoy, you know, now I get to enjoy all my kids bringing home, you know, all the, maybe it wasn't the kids. Maybe, maybe it's just, it's just, we get to enjoy good old fashioned head colds again, you know, part of the joys of, of, of America getting out of COVID. I think you should wear masks around your kids all the time. No. Or make them wear masks, even better. You know what? There little you go. Kids, I, little kids love masks. Oh, yeah. It'll be fun. You know, maybe, especially <laughs> you get dinosaurs on them, you know, it'll be great. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. Dinosaur. <laughs> well, I didn't get to wish you. Uh, anyway, I, I am on the men, though. Yes. I'm, it's feeling, feelings are feeling good. That's great. I didn't get to wish you a, a happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Belated yes. happy birthday. Thank you. Yes. Another another year. So yes. I got yes, mine, mine, mine coming up on uh, this week, this week coming. So I guess so where are you a yeah. Gemini then or are you a, a Cancer? I'm a Gemini. You're a Gemini? I'm a Cancer. So that must be, oh, yeah. must be why we get along so well. There we go. Like, yeah, yeah, like two Geminis can be like, you know. Yeah, I don't think that would work. So, yeah. yeah. There's just, there's just be too much energy. It would just be like, <laughs> be like a supernova of energy. We have like four people on a podcast. It's way too many. It's just yeah, too- that's right. It's like, yeah. <laughs> this All is right. good. We got it going well. So like, like happy, so happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. That's right. Yes. We, we both have PayPal and Venmo. Please folks are, feel free to send us. Yes. Many wonderful gifts, not gifts, not not gifts, but gifts with the, with. Yeah, F. I don't want any dancing babies or <laughs> no, no, no gifts. No. All right, 
I have no segue from Dancing Babies to the new markers, new newsmakers. So let us just roll into number five. Number five on the list. We've got a uh, a story that uh, ran in full on medical design outsourcing. It's uh, about uh, how uh, contract manufacturers are fueling a uh, expansion in Costa Rica. We've actually had a slew of stories about uh, contract manufacturers like you know uh, opening up new facilities in costa rica expanding in costa rica um you know it's it's a real trend um you know and it seems to be you know there's always been a big med tech presence in costa rica all Mm -hmm. the all the big companies like everything from abbott to medtronic to phillips to you know whoever like has a you know is doing has has plants down there you got contract manufacturers that move down there too but it's just like really uh really growing a lot right now and um it, it seems like you know like some some of the reasons are uh you know it, it just seems like you've reached this kind of like critical mass where like you know things are, are growing a lot down there and, and the um country has a lot to offer for contract manufacturing i mean they've got um they, they in you know the past decade you had uh you know, Beam One now, Steris and Sterigenics open sterilization facilities there. Um, they, uh, the company, the country has a, a really good education system. Everybody learns English. Um, so you see, so you got a really good, uh, good workforce down there to work with. Uh, a, a funny fact about, an inter- actually really cool fact about Costa Rica is that they uh, abolished their military back in the 1940s uh, and poured the money into education and other social programs. So it's uh, it's really served them well. Nice, stable Central American uh, country, you know, with uh, which, you know, I, I went on vacation there once myself. Very, uh, very cool country. Um, so uh, I, I'm sure some of those med tech executives that do manufacturing down there don't mind uh, going down there and spending a few extra days and checking out the beach or, uh, you know, like one of the hot springs around the volcanoes or whatever. So it's, uh, it's the jungles. I mean, you got monkeys, wildlife. It's, it's very, really, really neat. So yeah, it's just good. I, you know, it, it wasn't mentioned in the story, but um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of this too is just that, uh, you know, all of the, um, you know, kind of supply disruptions we had in the pandemic might have gotten some some companies thinking more too that they need to do more, um, you know, more manufacturing closer to the United States mm-hmm. you know, versus oh, that's an interesting point. heading over to China. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that that's a, a little bit of what's going on too. And, um, and, and just as a final note, this story is by uh, managing editor Nancy. Nancy Crotty, yes. which uh, we're recording this on Thursday, and uh, this is uh, La- Nancy's last day. She's uh, she's retiring, so we will, uh, she'll be really missed around here. She's uh, done some some fantastic work, but we wish uh, wish Nancy all the best. She's going to be uh, you know relaxing, enjoying the summer. Absolutely, no, she's uh, she's been great to work. We've had her on the podcast once or twice, and uh, we certainly wish her well. And uh, yeah, I, I've never been down to Costa Rica, but. Uh, it, I think a device talks Costa Rica would make a lot of sense. What do you think? An in-person meeting down there? All right. Sounds great. Let's do it. All right. So we're thinking probably January, February timeframe. I like that. That's a great idea. Device talks Costa Rica. Let's do it. Let's make it happen. Let's make it happen. All right. Let us roll on to number four, a little closer to home for me on the new Marcus Newsmakers. Yeah, some really cool news for the uh, medical device hub uh, in, in Massachusetts, Tom. We got Vicarious Surgical, you know, announcing the establishment of a new corporate headquarters in, uh, in Waltham. Um, it's going to house roughly 250 employees. But, you know, Vicarious is kind of like this hot robotic surgery company right now. They're going public through a, uh, you know, special purpose acquisition company deal, a SPAC deal. You know, the SPAC attack. Back attack. Back attack. So yeah, there we go. They, um, you know, they're they're getting a new headquarters open. So like some uh, neat, some uh, some neat <laughs> news for uh, Massachusetts. 
Yeah, for sure. No, hopefully we'll have Adam Sachs, the CEO, on the podcast in the, in the near future to talk about sort of what happens uh, life post SPAC. I suspect yes. things are going at a at a breakneck pace for Vicarious, and uh, it is. It's cool to have a a, a hot up and coming medtech company uh, in the in the Boston area. Never never hurts. That's for sure. Absolutely. Now we'll bring in Dr. Jim Min of Clearly Health. Again, we'll talk with uh, Dr. Min about Clearly Health, its creation, and what he did to get ready to raise $43 million in our next podcast episode. Then we'll speak with two of their investors, uh, Justin Klein of Vinsana and Trip Peak of LRV Health to uh, understand how the investors looked at uh, looked at the deal and why they decided to invest. So now let's hear from Dr. Jim Min of Clearly Health. Well, Jim Min, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Jim, congratulations on your uh, on your financing. So I really wanted to use this as an opportunity to learn about Clearly Health and, and to just get an understanding as to, to the process that went into raising money. But I think the, the most essential piece of information is, is understanding what Clearly Health is and how you came to create it. So what is your background? Is this your first startup? Uh, this is my second. So we yeah, we had a small little mom and pop startup um, <laughs> <laughs> that we sold in 2016, 2017. Um, that startup was really focused on imaging informatics. So our our claim to fame was that we would be able to move uh, medical images de-identified um, from one site to another for the purpose of large-scale clinical trials for pharma and device companies. So um, it was a good way to sort of cut our teeth, but it, we never raised any money. We sort of just bootstrapped it and then sold the company. Then about a year later, we decided to start clearly and decided to take it a little bit more seriously. First employee in was like summer of 2017, um, so about three and a half years old or so. What was the origin story? Tell us a bit about Clearly and how did you come upon uh, on upon this technology and this approach? Yeah, so Clearly is a healthcare company. It creates uh, digital care pathways to try to prevent heart attacks and strokes. So that's the mission. Um, very much a mission-driven company. My background is actually as a cardiologist by training. I trained at the University of Chicago. I came to New York in 2005 and took a job at Cornell Medical College and New York Presbyterian Hospital, where I worked for about 15 years before uh, quitting to join the company full-time. But at Cornell, we did three things that sort of informed the thesis of the company. The first thing that we did was uh, we had a clinical cardiovascular disease prevention program called Heart Health. And that was a very popular program where we leveraged advanced imaging to really better diagnose prognosticate, guide clinical decision-making um, in order to prevent heart attacks and strokes. We had the luxury of being supported by philanthropy. So we, we had the time to analyze these studies, but it was taking us about eight hours per patient to analyze them in totality. So we realized it was never going to scale past the Cornell walls. So the second thing that we did was in the research realm, we had a, a computational arm that did a lot of image processing. And that was when all of these deep learning and AI algorithms came about. And that was a focus of ours. And the third major focus was really in the performance of large-scale longitudinal multicenter clinical trials to understand what we're seeing on the, these advanced images in terms of disease phenotype and how that relates to somebody's outcome and how can you leverage that to improve their outcome as well as reduce healthcare um, costs and resource consumption. So we bundled all three of those things up and did an exclusive license out of Cornell into the company. And we started in earnest to try to develop 
digital solutions that could phenotype disease in a way that hadn't been done before in a time frame that could be clinical, i.e. in minutes rather than hours. Mm-hmm. And then we identified a few problems. The first problem that we, we were trying to solve was get that eight-hour analytic time down to a matter of minutes. That I think we, we've done. The second problem was that at least when we were reading images at you know, at my former institution, and we'd call our clinician colleagues in the office and talk about all of this advanced imaging science, nobody either knew about it or cared about it. And so we realized there was this huge lost in translation moment where all of this robust information was getting lost. The third step was also a problem when we were taking care of patients in the office, we realized we'd hand them the radiology report and they had no idea what we were talking about. And so this, there was another lost in translation moment. So we felt like we had to fix those. The fourth problem was we, we didn't really know how to treat um, actual disease and the mm-hmm. different types of disease because for 50, 70 years, we've been treating risk factors of disease. So we felt, felt like we needed to solve that problem. And then the last was we, we needed an objective quantitative way to follow the therapeutic success of our lifestyle interventions and medical therapy. So that's sort of the five-step pathway where we've developed sort of AI-enabled solutions that quantify and characterize the disease. Then we have the second software platform that's intended for clinicians to really empower them with the knowledge of the imaging science in ways that are actionable and that are easily digestible. The third is a lot of sort of innovative patient-facing tools to empower them with knowledge and improve health literacy. Um, The fourth is in partnership with the American College of Cardiology. Um, We've developed a series of treatment algorithms um, so that that, um, that leverage the latest clinical trial evidence as well as the practice guidelines. And then the fifth is a software platform, again, um, when you undergo serial imaging over time that we can track the success of your therapy. And if the, the ther- if the disease has not been stopped in its tracks, uh, that we can intensify therapy until we achieve success. So that, that's sort of the care pathway in a nutshell. That's amazing. So what, what is the, the status of, of your technology uh, in terms of regulatory approval and, and availability? Yeah, so the, we have two software platforms that have been FDA cleared uh, for use. We've been in the commercial marketplace for about six months now, um, and we're just starting to, to grow the business, especially post-financing. So when are people getting images? Is it after they've seen a, a cardiologist, after they've shown some problems and, uh, and the, a deeper diagnosis is needed, or is this a broader diagnostic tool? Yeah, it's a really great question. Like, if you look at the statistics, like, you know, we wait for people to come to us with chest pain or shortness of breath. Turns out more than half of the people who will be diagnosed with coronary artery disease um, will be diagnosed by either suffering a heart attack or dying from one. They have no symptoms before the event. And so there's a very proactive active community of people in the prevention community who've, who've really sort of, um, who like our, our um, platform because it allows for the earliest diagnosis of, of disease at a point where you can stop it in its tracks. So it's sort of more a broader diagnostic. I think in the, in the typical cardiology patient population, we also fit very well by providing very accurate and precise measures of coronary artery disease in, in ways that are actionable. So sort of across the spectrum of coronary disease presentation. So is this something that might be someday akin to a colonoscopy at some age, you, you go and have this done so you can begin your sequence of, of images and to have something to track or, or and I'm, I'm sorry if I just need clarification, do you, do you wait until someone just is, either they have one of the comorbidities or they've got some signs of problem? Yeah, that's a great question. Like um, that was the dream. Like when we 
when we left Cornell to start this company, it was really like, why are we using things to, you know, to quote unquote screen or do early diagnosis that miss 70% of the population who will, who are at risk. And so, you know, like a mammogram for breast cancer or colonoscopy for colon cancer, um, that we think that we've identified a method by which we can find people at the earliest states where the disease can be stopped. Um, so in partnership, um, again, with the ACC, like we've developed and designed a randomized control trial that will take many years to finish, but um, we'd like to achieve the level 1A evidence to support the fact that this is a test that should be used in, in all patients at risk. So you have the regulatory approval to, to have it used, but you're going to conduct the trials to demonstrate its efficacy and effectiveness uh, going forward. Yeah, I mean, we're scientists by training and by, you know, that's sort of the fabric of who we are. And so we've got about 10, 12 multicenter clinical trials ongoing to prove out the power of the technology and that it's it's valid and precise and accurate. Um, so we will never stop doing that. Like that's something that I think that, you know, the tech, new technologies have the, the burden to prove themselves. And, um, and that's something that we enjoy doing. So we'll continue to do the science. So what was the the process like you mentioned your first startup you didn't need to raise outside capital this time uh, you you said you wanted to to uh, I don't remember if you said you wanted to to go big but you decided capital would be necessary but I'm I'm wondering what that process like was to decide how did you decide that you needed to raise the outside capital was it clear and because of the the size of the trials you needed or with the the ability to with the FDA approval, did you did you consider not going forward with uh, with outside capital, or maybe non dilutive capital like grants? Yeah. Um, so the, the, we we looked into doing the grants. We you know as academics we we had a lot of NIH grant funding and things like that. But um, and they have the small business grants and things like that. They're they're pretty small and they do take quite a long time to apply for. And you know so then if you need capital quickly, I, I think it's not the most efficient route. And then I also think that. You know, if, if you want to scale the company into something that's meaningful, um, it's probably not sufficient to, to be able to grow into uh, the kind of company that I think we desire to be. Sure. No, that makes sense. So once you decided that you needed the capital, uh, what was involved in, in preparing the company for uh, the kicking of the tires and all the, the due diligence that went with it? Yeah, there's a lot of diligence that goes on. It's like a, we talked about colonoscopies. It's like a digital colonoscopy, but like, um, but I think it, what it does is it forces you to organize yourself, right? That data room that, you know, that is that you prepare for the diligence really forces you to think about things and, you know, all the components of your company and how it's organized and to try to really write the ship and make sure that, you know, every aspect of the company, whether it's regulatory quality or IP or product or commercial strategy is really that you've thought through and that you've articulated and that you've put down on paper. So we found it to be a fairly useful exercise. So that was a lot of the preparation. Um, a lot of preparation was in the messaging of really what, what are we trying to achieve, right? So, you know, I think that our technology in particular can go in many different directions. And I think to be very careful, to be focused and make sure that we know exactly the path that we're going down and to deliver that message. I think those were the probably the two major things. And then maybe there was a third, which is to get the team surrounding you, right? It's not, a company's not a person. A company is a collection of people who are, you know, rallied around a common mission. So to get that team with the proper skill sets, because I certainly don't have them all, and make sure that you have adequate firing power to try to achieve on all of those different goals. Did you have outside 
outsiders or an outside firm advising you in all these things? Or did you already have a board of directors at this point? How did you, how were you able to take that good, honest look at yourself and decide what was necessary? We had a series of board members at that time. We selected them. They were extremely helpful. Uh, One of them is extremely well-known in the field of cardiology at large. One was a former CEO of GE Healthcare Americas. One was um, is the current chief scientific officer at Microsoft Corporation. And so really like high, high powered people who could help advise us on AI and machine learning, uh, commercialization strategies, you know, cardiology community perspectives and opinions. So yeah, we had some pretty good people around the table. And now I think that we've expanded that. So it's, it's really nice to have that input. Yeah, that's that's some good advice right there. So talk a bit about the, the fundraising process itself. This is obviously a time where we're not road showing very much. I assume this was all done virtually over Zoom or Teams or whatever platform you're using? Yeah, we relied very heavily on Zoom. And, you know, I, I, I can tell you, I've never really done the road shows, like, so it's hard for me to compare it. But this seemed to be a particularly efficient way to to communicate with people. Like if you're doing that same pitch and you're going from one hotel to another or one venture firm to another, I think doing it on Zoom seemed to be very efficient. The thing that we lacked was the ability to actually interact and meet with the people. And mm-hmm. that, I, that I think is, is there's a lot to be said for that. I think when we finally decided to, in, to partner with one of the, with the lead investor, um, we had the occasion to actually get together in person. That was really nice to actually meet somebody, have a meal with them before, you know, before you make this really big commitment to each other. That's, that's important for sure. So what sort of interest did you, uh, did you garner? Did you had multiple term sheets to consider? Uh, what was the interest like? Yeah, we did. We spoke to a number of investors and then had multiple term sheets, end up having an oversubscribed round. And so um, it turned out to be a very good experience for us. I, I don't think it's for the faint of heart. Like it, it, it takes quite a bit of effort and a lot of work. And um, and then looking sort of from the lens of, of their prism, like from the VC lens, like I think that that diligence process is an extremely important one, right? They they have a fiduciary responsibility to their investors. So um, we just tried to be as understanding as we could. We'd also tried to be as detailed and and complete as we could. But um Overall, I think it was it was a it was a long process, but it was definitely a learning one. And you know, the group of investors that we ended up um, partnering with, I think that they're just they're blue chip, first rate um, healthcare VC, and um, just really honored to be part of that team. Oh, that's great with LRV and Vetsana and New Leaf, uh, definitely three great names. What uh, what ultimately tipped the scale in their favor? How did you go with that group? You know, it was really the lead at Vinsana. Like he's he's an MD JD. He's just extremely thoughtful. Like um, it, just very smart, very thoughtful, very calculated, very deliberate, and you know, um, just r- really thought he was a good investor. And then we were introduced to him by another um, mutual friend of ours, and you know, just they they spoke the same language, and so that was something that we that really came about. And then, you know, as we shored up the syndicate, they were all like that. LRV was like that. Mm-hmm. New Leaf was like that. Digitex was like that. And so we just are, um, again, like it sounds corny, but we're, we feel very privileged to be um, part of this working team. Oh, it seems, I mean, uh, you can speak to this better than I, but this is more than a, this is not a financial trans- transaction. This is a, a long-term relationship you're en- entering. So you really do need that sort of philosophical and energetic connection, I would imagine. 
Yeah, I think so. So what are your uh, your plans going forward now that you have the, the capital secured? And how do you sort of manage or are you managing? How are you looking at the next round of financing? I guess is my question. Sorry to bring that up right now, but do yeah. you have a map in, in mind as to when you need to go out again? How are, you, how are you looking at the future? Yeah, I mean, I think we've defined a fairly careful commercial strategy that's staged. And so I think we'd like to hit on some milestones um, before we would consider going out for another financing round. Market conditions are fairly favorable, I think, but, and they may change over the course of the next year or two. We'll see. But I, I think that's something that we're going to table for right now. We're going to just, we, we know a certain number of milestones that we'd like to check off and say, okay, we, we successfully completed those in order to demonstrate that we're creating some value. And so we'll do the, that. I think that will probably take us some period of time. And I think that with the current financing, uh, we're okay for a while. So let's achieve success first and then think about the, the next step later. Great. And uh, this has been very instructional. I guess my last question would be any, any tips or advice for others who are, uh, are weighing their uh, fundraising needs and, and wondering about the fundraising process? I learned a lot from this process and uh, learned a lot from the people that we had the opportunity and privilege to interact with. I think messaging is like clarity of thought, I think is a, a big one um, because I think there's a temptation. I certainly have it to try to provide too much detail and too much. And I think that um, the clarity of thought as you present and interact with people, I think that's one. I think realistic assessment of what the, the company can actually do rather than what, the comp- what you hope the company can do. Um, I think that that is a dichotomy that um, that if you can marry those two, I think then you, you better sit in the investor's shoes, right? Because I think every every startup thinks that they can do more than they can. And I mm-hmm. think it's probably the re- realism is probably important. Um, I think those are probably two of the major. And then uh, uh, obviously go to market. Like, I mean, I think that you just saying I built a product doesn't mean you built a company. So how are you going to actually take it to market? And how are you going to actually create value? And I think those are, are, um, that's a really important one as well. And then the last one is one that somebody told me, they're like, it's just as hard to build a company with a bad product that nobody wants as it is to build a company with a great product that everybody wants. So pick the product carefully. So I think that's probably great advice as well. That is that is great advice. Money and time are our two most valuable assets. So that's terrific, Jim. Thanks for the uh, advice and for the time and for the insights and for joining us on the podcast. All right. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. Hey, folks, I want to remind you that we're going to be meeting on Tuesday at Device Talks Tuesdays, 4 p.m. We'll be hosting a session that's sponsored by our friends at S3 Connected Health. We'll have a great discussion about medtech connectivity. And I spoke with one of our panelists and a longtime Device Talks friend, Bill Benton, about what he'll be talking about on Tuesday. Let's listen. Devices have been isolated historically over most of of the medical lifetime. And we're going to talk about how they're evolving to become connected. We're going to talk about what can be done with the data with those devices. But probably most uh, importantly and of most interest is the coming disruption that's going to happen. Disruption in the medical space, disruption to the med device people, and disruption from outside sources and companies like an Apple or Google and Amazon coming into the space. And at the end of the day, we'd like to talk about what the future holds. And we'd posit that perhaps that future is one in which devices are commodities, 
where data rules and where outcomes are all that matters. Okay, once again, don't forget to join us on Tuesday, June 29th at 4 p.m. Eastern. The session is called Innovation in Healthcare, Devices, Data, and Disruption. And we're going to be hearing from Bill Betton, the Director of Solutions of MedTech at S3 Connected Health. And we'll hear from Michael Hill. Michael is the former VP of Corporate Science and Technology and Innovation at Medtronic. He's retired from Medtronic, but he's working with many startups on connected health issues. So please do register at devicetalks.com. Registration is free. And you can listen on demand if you're unable to join us live at 4 p.m. All right, let us roll on to number three on the New Markers Newsmakers. Well, number three on the list, we've got uh, Johnson Johnson's Ethicon. They announced the launch of their uh, NCL X1 Curved Jaw Tissue Sealer. So, you know, the Ethicon developed the NCL as kind of like this advanced bipolar energy device. It's designed to increase procedural efficiency, you know, it provides stronger sealing, better access to more tissue um they're kind of you know saying saying this they're they're touting this as being um a cut above uh the the competing medtronic you know ligature uh maryland so i guess let the let the competition begin but uh yeah ethicon uh you know uh you know touting this uh new uh new uh jaw tissue sealer that they launched Awesome. Great news for uh, for Ethicon. All right. You uh, you mentioned the Medtronic name. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Number two, big news from, yeah. from Medtronic. Oh, from Medtronic, um, they uh, announced that, the, the, that they've completed the first patient procedure with the uh, Hugo Robot Assisted Surgery System. So they're continuing to uh, you know move forward with the uh, Hugo Robot, which is their big play to uh, compete with intuitive surgical and the uh, soft tissue uh, you know robotic surgery markets. So so things are are moving forward. Uh, the Hugo just last month they garnered a FDA investigation device exemption around it. So uh, and uh, not no no clearance or approval yet in the U.S. But uh, you know uh, Medtronic's definitely moving forward with this. There's a lot riding on uh, on Hugo for them. Between that and uh, renal renovation, those are really the two uh, two big growth drivers or or potential growth drivers for Medtronic. So yeah, if they're going to grow, it's going to be those two areas. Exactly. So exciting news for uh, for Hugo. And all right, let us uh, go into to number one. Unfortunately, a little uh, a little disappointing news for the medtech industry and for Philips. Yeah, it's disappointing news for uh, for Philips. You know this uh, you know major. Uh, you know, PAP and a CPAP ventilator device recall that they've had, um, you know, there's there's a, a foam component uh, problem that they're working through with the devices. Uh, but, you know, the, the story that's getting a lot of attention is that they were analysts at the Baird, you know, pointing out that this could benefit uh, the competing company ResMed. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's tough what Phillips is going through. Um, at the same time, you know, this, uh, this could, I mean, ResMed's already uh, you know, just like this really uh, big player in the CPAP field. And this mm-hmm. could like, you know, you know, provide them even more, uh, even more, you know, growth as, you know, Phillips has to, uh, you know, deal with this recall. So, you know, kind of, um, you know, like a, like an interesting, um, you know, take on how, you know, you know, you got one company that's, you know, having this unfortunate problem, but, you know, you got another company that, uh, you know, could be seeing an opportunity. Oh, we saw that just recently with uh, Medtronic's news about hardware. Yeah, how, absolutely. How yeah. Abbott will be stepping up to, to fill that gap. So, yeah, ResMed's a, a, an innovative company. Uh, Mick Farrell, the CEO, we haven't had him on the podcast. We had him on a Device Talks Tuesday last year, but uh, they definitely uh, they definitely will be be 
taking advantage of any opportunity they can find. So it'll be interesting to see how they, uh, how and if, if and how they benefit from this. So, well, great list uh, from the uh, new Marcus newsmakers, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. I know it's summertime, but the news, the news continues. You know, and we had some other big news this week, which I didn't mention, which uh, is uh, I, we're, we're, we're doing this thing in person next year. That's right, baby. We rolled out our, our schedule for the device talks in person meetings. We'll be meeting in May in Boston. Oh, and I've got a ribbon written up on my whiteboard because I'm old and can't remember things. May 10th and 11th. <laughs> and then in Minnesota, we'll be there June 6th and 7th. And device yeah. talks West will be happening on October 19th and 20th. We're already talking with uh, a lot of the strategic uh, leaders in medtech about uh, speakers and keynotes and the lock. So we're not uh, we're not waiting. We're uh, we're excited to uh, to be rolling out that that uh, that that slew of meetings. Uh, we had some designs on a meeting this year, but there's just I think just too much uncertainty to to guarantee that things would go well. So uh, hopefully by then, are, are we going to do a news new markers newsmakers in person in front of the crowd? That would be outstanding. I think I think that's in the works. We're gonna have to uh, like so that you know if if people are like you know who are who are those silly guys doing these <laughs> newsmakers, they can they can see it in person. They can just like be like, there we go. Yeah, that just confirmed everything I thought. I think about I, what was going on. I'll, I'll check with registrations, <laughs> but I suspect that news that the news of that just sold out. We sold out every event. I'm sure just just based on yeah. They just You'll looked. have to be there or be square. So yeah, no, it's going to be go. great to uh, to see everyone in person and to uh, and to really have uh, have an opportunity to to meet after all this time. So uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. If anyone wants yeah. to be part of it, uh, feel free to uh, connect with me on LinkedIn and and uh, and let's talk. It's great to have uh, MedTech all together in in one building again. Slowly, it's getting better all the time, man. Now it's time for our closing keynote conversation. Let's hear from Jeremy Moniak, the CEO of Minitronics. Jeremy Moniak, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Appreciate you having me. It's going to be great to learn about Minitronics. I haven't had the chance to, to really talk to anyone in your company yet, and you've got some uh, interesting developments going on. But we like to start these interviews off finding out uh, a bit about our guests. And uh, I know you're a, a guidance alum, and I'm always in pursuit of someone who can, can speak ill of that experience. Uh, I haven't found anyone yet. But yeah, you won't with me either. <laughs> <laughs> how, did you, uh, how did you find your way into MedTech? Actually, right out of uh, college, I interned at uh, I interned at, at Guidant my senior. What would have been going into my senior year? Oh, really? Okay, that was and, at Purdue uh, from, from from Purdue. Yeah. yeah, electrical engineer. I had my it wasn't my first internship, but it was my first internship in med device and med tech, and I honestly just really really loved it. Loved the company, but loved the uh, uh, loved the med tech experience. I prior to that, I had internships in little bit in automotive kind of touched on that, but mostly probably I, I would say like defense and it, though the technology pieces were really, really interesting and exciting. It just didn't have the same, same purpose and connection that you get working, working yeah. in med device. And I just, I was hooked from very much from the beginning. So then I came back um, to Minnesota. I was, I was raised here and then came back to Minnesota after my bachelor's degree at uh, Purdue and joined, uh, joined guidance was there. Uh, all the way through until they were uh, ultimately acquired by Boston Scientific and then stayed for about a year, uh, a year after that. But no, it was great. Very formative years um, and a lot of, a lot of fun. Learned a lot about culture, you know, company and how impactful that is 
at a very, I think, young age, which was, I think, has been probably a big component of kind of the way I lead and the way I do things now. There was an interesting exchange on Twitter about engineers and uh, whether they're drawn to an industry that has purpose or whether they're more drawn to an industry that has technical technological challenges that uh, that keep their interest peaked. Uh, do you have a f- feeling on that? And and does medtech sort of deliver on uh, check both those boxes? Yeah, I think I think that's what's unique. Yeah, uh, it does actually check both those boxes. I think the challenges, the technical challenges are unique. I don't know that you can get a better purpose, uh, t- to be honest. I think the technical challenges are are there. I think maybe the only place where med tech in some ways can be a little bit of a, of a drag, and I think actually it's an interesting value prop for Minitronics as we recruit recruit new talent, is the velocity in med device. It's just slow, right? Uh-huh. It, on the slower side, right? You got to go through regulatory hurdles and clinical hurdles and all these sorts of things. And so that velocity of just doing engineering work that a lot of engineers really, really like, it can be a little bit slower in the med device space than I think some engineers want. But I think, I think it hits both actually the kind of the degree of difficulty of the technical stuff and solving new, new challenges, as well as the purpose, I think being uh, is, is excellent. So you left Boston Scientific in, in 2007, became director of R&D and then vice president at Leptos Biomedical. And yes. From there, joined Minitronics uh, as vice president first and then, and then COO. What yep. led you to Minitronics? And, and tell us a bit about, uh, about the company. As I said, we haven't had anyone from the company on the podcast before. Yeah, so uh, Minitronics. I, I'll just start with a little bit of background, and then we'll I can I can share how I entered. The it was founded uh, in medical uh, medical alley of uh, St. Paul uh, in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. Really, twenty five years ago. This is our twenty fifth uh, anniversary uh, this year uh, in, in twenty twenty one. So wow. that, that, that's ex- that's exciting. I would say we have a deep history of partnering. It's been primarily and, and really always been a partnering company. You know, we partner with large and small medical device sellers, the kind of the commercial companies uh, throughout our throughout our history. Um, really developing, I'd say, core expertise in radio frequency and electromagnetic devices, mm-hmm. optical devices, uh, what, what we coined fluid and gas management. So think of you know, cryoablation, those sort of things where you're moving fluids around. Um, and then the kind of lastly, uh, stimulation um, and, and wearable, kind of complex wearable uh, wearable devices. And so that's kind of the, the history and basically, I would say, where our, where our core essence um, aligns today. I came in, the, I joined the company about 10 or 11 years ago now, really to start some of what we call whole, whole pro- today is on our website is Whole Product Solutions, which is essentially marketing to partner companies. Um, devices that are already done. And by done, I mean, you know, they're clinic regulatorily approved. Potentially some clinical trials have been done if that's been required. To they're, get they're done by somebody else first, you mean? They're, they're done by us. Oh, okay. They're done by us. That was the, so when I joined the company, that was really my mission uh, was mm-hmm. see what was, it was really to identify whether there was an opportunity there to add to the, to, to the offering. Would customers essentially buy it? Did they want it? Was it filling a niche uh, in, in the market? And we felt like it was. And then we we really kind of honed in on the neurospace where you see some of our you know initial products. So I would say I came in to, to really start that initiative. It wasn't neuro that it was really, we called it new ventures because <laughs> it really had no product, no focus other than is there some other things we can do for customers in this space to help them grow their business and ultimately help kind of help patients and, and, and clinicians. So 
that was where I came in. And then, uh, as you said, I evolved into other, uh, other roles at, uh, at Minitronics. So what, it, what is the additional service in that? What, what had Minitronics been doing prior to that? Were, were you just doing a portion of the, the device creation and you wanted to do the whole stream of it now? Or what, 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 is, what is different in the program you just described and what you had been doing previously? Yeah, that's a, that's a really astute question because I, in many ways, not that much. Um, and in many ways, a, a number of things are different. I would say Minitronics has always been a really a full life cycle partner. So that means, you know, from napkin sketch or initial de- device concept all the way through, um, you know, regulatory submissions, product launch, um, and commercial manufacturing. Really, the only thing I would say that's significantly uniquely different is the identifying the unmet need and the initial device requirements. You know, it's deciding what to build mm-hmm. or what to develop. Most of the time, our customers come to us with something that they believe is, you know, filling an, an unmet need in the market. And then we work with them to develop it and manufacture it and do all the other stuff. In this case, we went out to the market and said, you know, are there opportunities and voids and needs that aren't being met? And we basically just decided what to, you know, what we could create uh, what, what, what to develop on our own. So that okay. in, in terms of what we, we did, 80% of it was the same as what we would do for our customers today. The 20% was identifying what to build or what problem to solve in the, in the med tech space, in the, in the medical device space, or in, in this case, it was the neuro ICU. Um, and then we, and then on the back end, we're kind of stopping in a similar place as we'd stop today, which is we're working with a handful of potential, uh, customers now partners where they would sell the product, um, you know, either under private label or kind of however that would go um, in terms of they would put it in their commercial bag. I understand. Okay. So, so that, that program you're talking about basically doing the work that, that, that device creation for yourself on a device that, that you've identified a need for it. And you, yeah. the, 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 the device that sort of got this conversation going was your mind's eye device that, that won a, a design award. Yes. Now it's my understanding. Is that the, f- is that the first device that you've created start to finish or have you had others? No, that is the first, that is okay. the first that we've had uh, regulatorily approved. We mm-hmm. have, have another one that's been in clinical trials. That was actually quote unquote invented <laughs> before mind's eye. It's just, it required about two to three years of, clinical trials of, you know, 50 to 70, I think patients now, you know, in the neuro ICU, which takes, uh, which takes time. So that mission should be going in here this fall. Um, But that one was actually started before, but the one mind's eye was the first one um, that got uh, regulatory approval. And it'll be the first one to kind of launch with some, with, with our partners here in, in the back half of this, uh, in the back half of this year is what so talk to me a bit about this this program because it it sounds really transformational for a company to go from working on helping others to make devices or helping or helping others make devices to developing your own. I mean, you're really switching from a CMO to almost you know I don't want to say an OEM, but you're a medical device manufacturer. Why are you pursuing that sort of shift in business or that addition to business? And uh, and talk a bit about that transition because they are two very I think they're two very different approaches, but maybe there are similarities. Yeah, I would say we don't we see it as a it's additive to be honest. We see it as an extension of what we do uh, what we do today. We're not trying to shift from one business to the other. We okay. an extension of our relationship with our partners today, and that really comes down to it from my perspective. It comes down to we don't we don't really have the intention to sell commercially uh, at scale. We don't have a sales force to the hospital, a direct sales force. We're not 
we're not planning necessarily on building one. That's where we work with our partners. I think the main difference here is, you know, we're, we're bringing the innovation as well as a regulatorily approved product that enables, you know, essentially more, uh, you know, more products, more growth for our customers than, the, than in some sense, the growth they could have got, you know, through their own R&D pipeline or through their own acquisition pipeline. Mm-hmm. Through M and A, you'd, you'd almost look at it as a different form of M and A for our customers. We're not asking them to buy Minitronics Medical. We're just asking them to buy a, a product that Minitronics Medical has created, mm-hmm. and that's so that to me fundamentally is not that is not that different. We're not we're not trying to be an OEM. We're not trying to switch from being a partner to a um, to an OEM. So how are these? Uh, how is the Mind's Eye then then sold? Uh, who are your your customers in that regard? Are you selling to uh, Distributors, or, or are you are you working yeah, with distributors to sell it? Or strategics, yeah, like yeah. A strategic yeah. as a as a distributor. Would you contract with multiple strategics to sell it, or have an exclusive arrangement? I, I think that just depends on what makes sense. Most of the discussions, you know, in this space, and we all know people want exclusive. People like exclusive relationships if they're going to put the uh, weight and the time in developing their sales force and training it to you know training their sales force to sell a product. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you could look at different things depending on different geographies, things along those uh, things along those lines. But I, I, we would, you know, it could be non-exclusive, could be exclusive. I think we're we're still working through those sorts of terms now, in terms of what the uh, kind of what the actual T's and C's look look like on some of these specific uh, arrangements. Interesting. And what was the the genesis of this uh, of this program? What what needed was there externally or internally to yeah. decide that you want to develop your own devices? Yeah, we, I mean, we really saw it as an opportunity to fill what we consider to be an innovation gap in the, in the, in the med device space. So if you were to peel the uh, kind of peel a layer back on the sort of stuff we do, it, yes, it's all in this case, it's all in the neuro ICU, but it really uh, I would say one of the foundations of it is that it really looks after and tries to innovate in what we would call middle markets. So there are unmet needs that, you know, we would, we would not try to innovate in diabetes, for example, or cardiology. Like those are really big spaces with, you know, vent, tons of venture capital, big, you know, big uh, OEMs that are you know, actively innovating in the space, that sort of stuff. We saw our, we saw a gap, I would say in terms mm-hmm. If you looked at outcomes with uh, kind of patients or conditions that were thirty thousand a year, forty thousand a year, fifty thousand a year, in which maybe the market size is you know half a billion, you know five hundred million dollars in that in that neighborhood, those were areas uh, that still do, but at the at, at, particularly at the time when we started the initiative, really weren't attracting much interest at all. Um, but there's there was a real big op- we felt there was an opportunity and there was customers selling in our customers of ours selling in those spaces, but not they didn't have anything new. And if you looked at the economics of it um, in us in these smaller niche markets, it was it was difficult. So we thought, given the fact that we already have you know the development, we already we already have a lot of the uh, the capabilities essentially to do this. We felt that we could basically create these. Um, Create products that filled, you know, filled an unmet need in these, you know, specifically in these middle market spaces. Mm-hmm. That that really would be a service to our customers that they wouldn't wouldn't just wouldn't get filled through other avenues of the marketplace through normal venture capital through normal R and D at strategics that sort of stuff because of the size of the markets themselves. 
Um, and that, you know, we just looked at it and said, you know, our cost of capital, the way we, the way we do things here, we can, we, we can innovate in that space and provide essentially a service um, to, to potential cu- to customers that sell in this channel, but it, it don't, there's not a lot of innovation in this channel. So we thought this is a good opportunity. So really it was the unmet need was the lack of, or uh, limited innovation in middle markets. Mm-hmm. And neuro had a lot of middle markets <laughs> within <laughs> for sure we all know about, you know, spine surgery or, you know, spinal cord stimulation for pain. I mean, those are big, big segments. We're in, you know, uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage and we're in, you know, uh, ICH or tumor removal, which are much, they're just smaller spaces, but they're kind of their high impact from a patient perspective. And the, there's still good opportunity to impact um, kind of both patients and economics uh, once, if you, if you can do it the right way. And mm-hmm. we did could. So that was, that was really the genesis of trying to fill what we consider to be a middle market need. And how did you create the, 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 the infrastructure, the innovative infrastructure to identify the need that became mind's eye? Did you have people on staff already who are engineering, doing engineering work for others and they, and they had a desire to innovate on their own? Did you bring in other people, did you solicit outside advice? What was that process like? Both, I would say that was a we had we definitely had some uh, some critical engineers here that we felt had the capability, and we're we're doing some of this sort of work for customers in different spaces, um, in different you know different segments of of, of uh, medical technology, um, and so we thought, hey, let's we could repurpose them into this space, and then also we brought in some key folks with, around regulatory that we may not have had otherwise. Um, you know, key interfaces with, uh, you know, we're, we have a really nice partnership with Dr. Grand at the University of Minnesota and, you know, physicians, uh, you know, neurosurgeons are, you know, across the, across the country. So, you know, we brought in, you know, not only the, pe- the, the people here, but also the, the network. Um, mm-hmm. And we built that network over time so that we could identify needs and innovate in that, um, in, in that, in that middle market space that we identified. And talk a bit about specifically about uh, the Mind's Eye. You won a Best New Technology Solution Surgical Award for the MedTech Breakthrough Awards program. Uh, how did that product come to be? And, and, and how did talk a bit about your success in, in designing it uh, to the extent that it would win an award like that? Yeah. No, I appreciate the, the question. The I think it was really came down to just asking and working with our surgeons and saying, what are you trying to do and what's hard? Um, and one of the things they identified was they are constantly, um, it's not afraid, but they're always balancing the risk reward of doing a surgery, um, going in and doing, essentially going in and doing brain surgery and repairing a bleed, um, an intracranial, uh, they, it would be coined an ICH, intracerebral hemorrhage, and versus just wait and see because they're so afraid of, uh, of the damage that you have to do to go in with the typical um, or the, you know, kind of the legacy or the current standard of care um, that they just were like, you know, it's, is it, they're always making this debate between, is it, is it, is it better to go in and be invasive or is it, um, is it better to just kind of wait and see and, and hope things get better? And so we started talking to them about what would something look like? What would change your mind? Like what would make it, you know, what, what would minimally invasive surgery look like in this space? And it really came down to two things. One is, is really small port of entry, basically. So you're not, you know, using a blunt object to push, essentially push brain tissue out of the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Want to go in really small and then be able to kind of open up gently. And that was 
coupled with the strong need to be able to dilate the opening as big as um, as big as you needed in some cases. The, the reason for that was they said their second biggest fear, once you go in, if you go in small, is if you end up with a bleed or something going on in a small port, then you have a problem. They need enough, they need to be able to dynamically create enough working area to solve the, the one-off challenges that come that come up with that surgery. So really Mind's Eye addresses both of those, uh, I would say in a really elegant way, by going, you know, by being retractable, by being clear um, mm-hmm. that the product is essentially transparent. And so you can see the wall, um, the, the brain tissue, you can see vessels and vasculature. So it really allows them to see down what would have historically been a deep, dark hole um, and to trying to do, you know, really fine brain surgery. Now they can see um, and they can really make that, that hole in a really non-invasive way, uh, as minimally invasively as possible, as, as big as they need to, given the situation. If things go really well, they can keep it really small and put it in and take it out and have really minimal uh, disruption of brain tissue. And if things get a little bit, uh, you know, go a little sideways and they need a little more working area to go in and, you know, cauterize a bleed or do something like that, they can open this up a little bit and do that and then shrink it back down again so that it doesn't have a huge, you know, it has the minimal impact on uh, on brain uh, brain tissues as possible. So those are really the two key kind of unmet needs or problems mm-hmm. working with our surgeons that they were able, that they identified. Um, and then really Mind's Eye is, uh, is, a, is a tool, is a product to, to really enable and make that, make that as, make brain surgery as easy as possible. I mean, that's as silly as that may sound. Um, and, it, and really it's trying to enable more people to get it because once things get so bad in the old, uh, kind of in the old paradigm, the old standard of care, um, then things can go downhill pretty quickly. So you really want to enable them to, to, to go in and go in in as minimally invasive, uh, invasive as a way as possible. Do you have a partner to sell that? We're in discussions with about four uh, okay. right now. Um, so we're close. Uh, we don't, we haven't finalized yet, but we are still, uh, we are actively in that phase of closing uh, that uh, a partnership to take it to the, to, to the commercial stage. How is this effort perceived from, uh, by rather uh, your clients, those who might hire you to make their own medical devices? Do they have a, any issue with your developing your own line? You know, I think if, if we were competing in the sales channel against them. I, I think they, it's possible. I would say we've gotten more positive feedback um, than, than any sort of criticism at, at this point, because it really, it really speaks to the understanding of how kind of how challenging this whole process is. And, and we understand it and we can, all the services and all the talent that we bring to bear um, for this, we can, we can repurpose to part. We, it is essentially the, the same, in many cases, the same talent that we bring. Um, to our customers and our, our clients for their products. Mm-hmm. The, the more knowledgeable we are, the better we can help. Um, and I think they see that as a big, as a big value. Um, it's actually created some interesting discussions um, with, 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 with customers and uh, potentially even new customers that I wouldn't have considered before, um, like, like venture capitalists themselves. Oh, interesting. If you just come, you know, basically, if so, if we just give you an idea <laughs> out of our think tank. Yeah guys do what what you did with mind's eye on our idea like can you just do everything for us and then we don't first again i think some of these are areas where if you look at it as a middle market need um it really is hard to to come up with a, a economic model that works with a return given you know given the 
kind of how much capital you have to put in and then the, you know, the essentially the sales price um, if you were to do some M&A on the back end in these smaller markets. So, you know, we've been even in discussions with some VCs about doing it, doing it for them as a customer. You know, they would obviously own the IP. So that's, it's a little bit of a hybrid. Yeah, that's interesting. But no, I, I think that, I, mean, I would, I would say pretty unanimously our customers, I, I think, see this as a, it really is part of what we offer them. We're not trying to compete with them. That's not the, that's not the purpose here. The purpose here is to give them more things to sell. <laughs> is to give our partners more things to sell to help their growth, uh, which helps our growth and then helps patients. So it's, it's pretty symbiotic. And that was the intent. We, you know, I think some people have tried this in the past mm-hmm. been more of a competitive thing, Yep, competing with your customers that that doesn't work. And that's not what we're doing. That's not and here. And that's not what we're doing. And, and do you, uh, uh, I'm not sure I should have looked this up, but does mind's eye, was it 510k or was it PMA? Yeah, this was five. This was five ten k. So you'll you would you likely stick to five ten k notification pathways, or are you open to? Um, yeah, but we're okay. I, we'd be okay doing things where there's some clinical data is required. Yeah, I mean the other product I was talking about, we will be submitting a five ten k on that. But we, you know, we have fifty to sixty patients of data to 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 demonstrate moderate risk and some of the other kind of elements that are a part of that. Um, submission package. So we're not afraid to do the clinical stuff. I think the PMA timelines are are so long, and I think it actually undermines a little bit our our middle market uh, phenomenon. You know, uh, good point. Basis, yeah, which is if you have to put that much, it's hard for us to even do those economically. They just need to be really big opportunities, right? To support the costs of a PMA, we we can't save enough money to make it economically. Uh, Kind of economically viable the way we can on things that take a couple of years um, that are in these smaller spaces we can we, we, the numbers work uh, for for us and for our you know, for our partners uh, on on those so I think we would there's probably reason to think we won't end up with a lot of PMAs. Yeah, that makes sense. You you kind of hit upon this in your answers, but I want to ask you the question to crystallize what what did this experience taking a product from start to finish? What did it teach you? teach your employees as individuals, but kind of teach you as a, as an organization. I have to think to your point, it was very illuminating to kind of go through the process that many of your clients are going through as well. <laughs> yeah. I think the, I, I, I probably the simplest and easiest is, you know, I think we, we are in the contract business, the partnering business. It's a lot about requirements, right? I mean, it's a lot about what are, you know, what, do, what do you need us to design? What do you need us to build? And then we can go do it. And I think we, 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 it's, it's always a struggle, right? I mean, our, our customers don't always know exactly what the requirements are because they're going through this innovation loop um, kind of along the way. Um, and I think we learned a lot. <laughs> we learned that that's not, that that is very normal and it, it's just part of the process. It's not something to be frustrated with. Um, it's just part of the process. Uh, the, the, those iteration loops, the, you know, requirements changing, you know, for a while through, through the process. Um, I think that was really important for our organization to be, to, even if they weren't in directly involved, they got to, you know, see it and participate in it um, in a way that it, I think, was is helpful for them to put our customers' challenges into context um, and what they're, you know, what our what our customers are challenged with. I think they got to see that, hey, when we did it ourselves, we're cha- we have the same challenges, and those are just real challenges. And then I think it helps us work with our with part partner with our customers better across all of our products. And because it's not about you need to lock down requirements, for example, it's about how do we how could we help you <laughs> figure this out so mm-hmm. and we can lock down requirements. It's a it changes the conversation. 
um, from one of you need to do this to how can we help? Because I think we just we, we were able to see that challenge as a as just a, a challenge of product development. It's not a it's not a customer or Minitronics problem. It's just a challenge of developing a product in the in the space. And so I think that was really beneficial for the whole organization of you know hundreds of people, even though you know five or ten were working on this specific product. Excellent. Uh, a final question that's literally more of a, a bricks and mortar question, uh, but you can tie it into the future of the company. You, you went through a, re- uh, 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 you've, you've got a new headquarters. I don't know if it was, if you renovated or if you moved to a new spot, I saw the slideshow on uh, yeah, yeah. on the business journal. It looks pretty, pretty sharp. What were you going for with the, the redesign? Because you've got a basketball court and some kind of cool workspaces. <laughs> uh, and uh, sort of what does it say to where Manatronics is heading going forward? Yeah, I think it, I think it's intentionality. I think it's intentionality around brand. It's intentionality around culture um, and how we how we want to be perceived in the in the market. And I think that was all woven in um, to this redesign. Aside from just giving us the growth space we needed uh, to grow uh, at our you know continue to grow at our you know whatever fifteen percent twenty percent, which is what we expect and what we think we can do going forward. So we needed to obviously expand, but at the same time, I think taking that space and turning it you know into a space where culturally. Our employees want to be here. It feels right. It pr- promotes collaboration, promotes innovation, promotes you know unity and working together to solve the tough problems that exist in the space uh, that exist with working with these technologies. And then you know have something that you know when cu- we br- can bring customers in and they feel that same vibe. They 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 want to come in and partner with us, and <laughs> whether it's play basketball over lunch while they're <laughs> you know it, we we want it to be fun and you know be a, an environment that really is engaging uh, for them and our teams to to work on these problems together. So we were we were very intentional about that, and I think it's I, I think the team that worked on it. I wasn't directly involved, but I think they they hit a home run. Excellent. All right, Jeremy, it was a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Tom. All right, Chris Newmarker, now is the time to to what? Where you know, where can they find us? That's right. Where are we? Cuz so, we are more than just two two awesome podcast voices. We are people, Chris Newmarker. We're human beings. We, we're sociable. We do the social that social media thing. We do. Like, so we do it well. Can, where do you do it, Chris Newmarker? Where can we find you? You can find me. I'm over on LinkedIn. You can find me Chris Newmarker just like a Newmarker. And uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter as well at Newmarker. Always, always happy to chat with people, find out new things going on. Awesome. And I am on Twitter at MedTechTom. I am on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi, S-A-L-E-M-I. And uh, yes, please do connect with us there. Please do share this podcast episode on those social media channels. Make sure you tag Chris and myself so we can be part of those conversations. Please do subscribe to the Device Talks weekly podcast. You can find that on every major podcast channel, along with our other podcast, Medtronic Talks. You can find both of them on devicetalks.com, and you can find both of them on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Google. We're out there. So uh, please do subscribe. Well, that's it. That If there's a social media platform we don't know of, it's still there. It's there somewhere. It will, You'll yes. find it. Don't worry. Yes. We'll, we will be there. So like, follow, subscribe. <laughs> and that is a wrap. Find us. Thanks for joining us on this episode <laughs> of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Tune in next week. We'll have another great. Oh, hold on a second. I just misspoke. I, we're not going to have an episode next week because it's July 4th holiday. We'll take the, we'll take yes. the week off. Plus the aforementioned birthday of mine. I think it's just uh, wise. We may I may post a uh, a favorite from last year on there, kind of a, an awesome replay of an interview we did. 
But uh, Chris and I will not be bringing you the news uh, in the Device Talks weekly podcast format next week. But uh, so I guess this affords us the opportunity to wish everyone a, a happy Fourth of July weekend. Happy Fourth yep, of July. Yep. Have a have a, a safe holiday break, and we'll be back the uh, the following Friday with a new Device Talks weekly podcast. USA, USA. <laughs> 